0: Good Monday morning to you all, your final Monday of the regular semester. Happy
1: early Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yay! Do you see how festive we came in early to we decorate did this like this? Just for you. For you. For this class. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. Hey, we have a bunch of announcements today, more than usual, so tune in we'll probably send these announcements in email form too but it just feels right also to say them first of all we're adding a new phrase to the creed today
0: yes 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 born of the virgin mary
1: born of the virgin mary who was conceived by the holy spirit comma born, born of, of, the the Mer- of the virgin mary. mary so we're just in time for christmas just in time for christmas do you see how we planned this born of the virgin mary right for christmas you'll continue reading athanasius and of course finish the book this week thinking about the incarnation we're we're, we're hitting all of the christian Themes. You know, yesterday was the first day of Advent. Did, did, yes. it, did, it, did any of you go to a church that had some Advent related thing? Not one person. Yes. That's great. It's good to know the We've fate got of a the church. Advent so, calendar. so, Advent is actually in the Christian calendar, Advent is the beginning of the year. Like, this is like New Year's Day for Christians in, in a sense. We start our year now with the coming of Jesus into the world in this season. And so, the church actually operates on a very separate kind of calendar from the rest of. The world, like yes. we have a calendar with dates and so on and months, but the church has its own calendar.
0: Yeah, so while many people are starting to think about the end of the, the year of 2019, we are thinking about the beginning of the Christian calendar, and we are headed toward a really important date that we will talk about in the spring, but hint, it's Easter, right? It's, it's very exciting. Yeah. I'm excited about it.
1: So the Christ, this, is a big, this is a big moment in the Christian calendar that we're in on the second day of, of Advent here today. Okay, so that's our little point there. Ta-da! Ta-da! So now the announcements. These are all oriented around the fi- kind of like end of the class concerns, the final exam, things like that. Okay, so let's, let's do it. Number yes. one, the final exam, according to the university schedule, which we do not set, is next Thursday, not this Thursday, but the next Thursday, December 12th, I think that is, from 10.15 a.m. to 12.15 PM.
0: And the exam will be identically formatted to the midterm, okay? So it will be different questions, although there might be a couple of ones that lots of people miss the first time around. It's cumulative. It's
1: cumulative. We might want to drag some questions back from the midterm that were popular ones not to understand, and we'll guide you on the study guide as to how you can review for those. But But
0: the format is the same, so you can budget the same amount of intellectual Mm workspace to the final as you could to the midterm. That's not the, the case in every college class, so many college exams well their final will be a little bit different but this one will be identical just to let you know.
1: The exam period from 10:15 a.m. to 12:15 p.m. that's again we don't set that that's the university. It, the exam will be the same. So, you know, y- whatever time you finished in last time, you might expect that you would finish in that time. Again, however, you should still not plan on finishing early. Know that that full 2 hours is budgeted for our exam. 10:15 a.m. to 12:15 p.m. Thursday December 12th.
0: And as usual, you can access the course notes um, via the website and also the study guide. And we are getting close to finishing the study guide. Like over the next few days, we'll be finishing it up. But you can expect to have at least a week with a completely finished study guide at your disposal. Mm -hmm. All the terms that you need to know, um, some of the big questions that you need to be asking as you get ready for the final.
1: Theo's study guide is up there under, re- under our resources tab. It's also linked a bunch of places on the syllabus, on our course website, um, which I know all of you visit all the time. But it's all there just so you <laughs> know. So there's already some study guide stuff up there now. It's just not as complete as it will be later in this week.
0: Also the course, eval- you, you may have gotten an email notification for a course evaluation, actually that link will not be of use to you. We are going to be evaluating the course with old-fashioned paper course evaluations on Friday. So don't actually click through there, or if you do you won't be able to fill it out. You'll be filling it out in person with paper on Friday.
1: So Friday is the day that you want to be here to evaluate the course. We want to hear from you, and we have a way of hearing from you, and so we're excited to do that. So Friday, that will be one of our tasks, along with the panel as normal. Oh, speaking of checking on things and coursey type things, on Foxtail, as probably all of you are aware, we have all of the records of your grades, all the way back from that weird distant time when we began this journey back in August, which seems like another lifetime probably to, to many of you as 18, 19-year-olds. but. It is there, and we have all of the grades. The time to check your grades, if you want to check it and kind of just make sure you're on top of everything and everything's been recorded correctly, is? Now. Not later. Not,
0: well, not at this minute, like in 45 yeah, yeah. minutes. Yeah,
1: like in, in other words, don't Today. don't come to us after the final exam and after grades have been recorded, then having checked and then trying to get things changed. It's really hard to do it after that's already done. It's really easy to do it now, so we want you to check grades. Make sure everything's, you know, feeling on the up and up. Now, not later.
0: Yes. All right. We are going to be going out in style this, uh, in this last Monday lecture of Theo. Oh, yes. We have, um, for your intellectual engagement, Dr. Nijay Gupta is going to be giving our final lecture.
1: Do you remember Dr. Gupta? Can you clap if you remember Dr. Yes. Gupta? Okay. He's, He's awesome. being encouraged right now by hearing this. Okay.
0: <laughs> He's very excited about it. He's going to be uh, teaching us this morning, but first we need to be, we need to recite the Creed.
1: Well, we should introduce him first too, oh, right. do we do we remember? I mean, I guess the clapping says that we remember Dr. Niji Gupta, but he is a New Testament scholar. He teaches full-time at Portland Seminary. We actually have a seminary which is like grad school for people who do theology and biblical studies. He teaches there for us. He's a fantastic scholar, a fantastic human being.
0: Yes, his most recent book is about, or is on the Lord's Prayer. It's a wonderful book that um, I highly recommend. If you want to know more more and think more about how oh, yeah. to pray. He's a huge Portland Timbers fan. All around great guy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Friend of the class and yes. one of our core faculty members. Let's <laughs> say the creed and let's welcome Dr. Gupta up to where we are. Our new phrase, of course, is born, born is of the Virgin, Virgin Mary. Mary. Can we do it? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Would you please join us in welcoming Dr. Nijay
2: Gupta? <laughs> Greetings, everybody. Happy December. It's an exciting time of the year. There's decorations. We put up trees for you. Um, this is kind of a book end of the term. I lectured at the very beginning of the semester when you were just brand new to George Fox, now you've been here for many weeks and, and you're feeling a little bit settled in, and maybe we're feeling comfortable with each other, so I thought I would make a confession. Is, that a, is this a safe place for me to make a confession? Thank you. Well, my confession is, you know, after I get home, long day, uh, take off my coat and my new hat, and my oldest daughter, Simran, and I sometimes sit down to watch one of our favorite shows called Supergirl. Any Supergirl fans uh, out there? Okay, one hand. I see that hand. Uh, we're really into it this semester. Uh, we've been watching several episodes. And I, you know, as you know, I like superhero TV shows and movies. And of course, the whole country loves these TV shows and movies because we like to see the action heroes with superpowers and all the cool tricks they can do, but there was actually one episode in particular from Supergirl that I wanted to share with you that made me think about what we're gonna talk about today. Supergirl, just like Superman, she's the girl of steel, she comes from another planet, she can fly, she's super strong, she has laser vision, she has frost breath, similar to Superman. But there's one episode where she uses up all her powers in one go, and she loses her powers for one day. And so for one day, one episode, she's completely human in terms of her vulnerability, her you know, susceptibility to having cuts and scrapes. And so it's a really interesting episode. I think the episode is actually called Human for a Day. And so it's kind of fun to see this person who is an alien, a superhero, bumble around, she trips on things, she hurts herself running into doorways, I think she falls and breaks her arm in the episode, and even though eventually she gets her powers back, there's something really special about her after she regains her powers because then she knows what it's like to be human. There's something unique about her embodiment and her experience on earth, even though she's still an alien, There's something unique about her actually knowing what it's like to be like you and me. And I just found that really endearing quality of her as a character that, you know, she's not just this hero, but she's actually spent time in the human experience. That gives us a little bit of a picture of what theologians call the doctrine of the incarnation. You may have heard the word incarnation before, you may not know what it means, but it comes from the, uh, the words in and carnation, in meaning coming into, carnation meaning flesh. So God became flesh in Jesus Christ, that's a key part of the creed where we say born of the Virgin Mary. To say that Jesus was born means that God became human in the person of Jesus, Now, because we talked about Trinity earlier, we recognize that that doesn't mean God changes forms like ice and water and and, uh, vapor, but it means that there's this special event where Jesus, Son of God, Divine One, comes into the world as a human being. Now, the creed doesn't talk a whole lot about Jesus' life. There's something that theologians call the big comma in the creed, so you have Conceived of the Holy Spirit, comma, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. You go from born to 30 years later suffered, and you have this comma that's kind of a placeholder for the whole life of Jesus. Now, of course, that's what the Gospels are for, they're to fill you in on what happens there. But it's important to think about that big comma and what it means. I bet if you've spent time in a church or you've been in a Bible study or you've heard sermons before... You've thought about the question, why did Jesus have to die a human death? He died for our sins. We're going to talk about that in the spring. That's going to be a big part of the material that we discuss in the spring. But I want you to think about this question. You might even want to write it down. Why did Jesus have to live a human life? Why did Jesus have to live a human life? You've thought about before, probably, why did Jesus have to die? But have you ever thought, why did Jesus have to live, live specifically as a human? You know, I remember in my early faith wondering, you know, if God's God, why can't he just wave a magical wand and just make everything better? If he's all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, so good, why can't he just wave his God wand and things just get better? This must be really important that God did it this way and not another way. That Jesus had to become human. Sometimes we don't think about these things because we're so used to hearing the basics of Christian theology, if not in a church, then kind of popularly at Christmas time. But in order to understand how radical and strange and impressive and amazing the doctrine of the incarnation is, we have to understand what religion was like in the ancient world. We think about religion as going to a coffee shop, opening up your Bible, having a latte or hot cocoa, and having a quiet time with Jesus. We think about religion as having a personal relationship with God, being intimate with God. But in the ancient world, that's not what people wanted at all. In the Roman world, what people wanted is called the Pax Deorum, peace with the gods. And so think about if you go to the bank, maybe you don't, but now I go to the bank. If I go to the bank, I don't want a relationship with the banker. Okay, I don't want a relationship with the teller. I just want to go and have my transaction. Actually, at my bank, they have tea, so sometimes I have tea. But most of the time, I just want to go in and get out. Sometimes I just want to go in the little booth with the ATM. I don't even want to deal with the people. I just want to get my money or give my check or whatever it is and be done. In fact, now I just do the mobile upload so that I'm even one more step removed from actually having a personal relationship with my bank. And the ancient world was a lot like that, Religion was largely transactional because you believe the gods are up there doing really important stuff and they shouldn't be bothered because either they're busy or they're mad or whatever and you just want to stay away from them, but you want to keep the peace, you want things to be nice. And Christianity is different. In order to understand many people's view of religion in the ancient world, there's this phrase that's sometimes used called deus ex machina which means God out of the box. What does that refer to? How many of you have heard that before? God out of the box, Deus Ex Machina, okay. Well, there's this idea that in ancient theater, kind of like Bauman Hall here, if you were here watching an ancient comic or tragedy, usually a tragedy or drama, you would have some sort of plot situation that seems impossible to resolve. And what would happen in in the Greek drama in particular is you would actually pulley down someone dressed as a deity. They have a mask of a deity. They'd pulley them down, so they actually come down from the rafters as if from heaven, and they'd swoop in, and they'd fix the problem, and then they, you would pulley them out. And so a theology of God out of the box is a theology where God's not really here with us. He's important, and, and the earth is just kind of this, you know, meaningless or, or or mundane place and the gods are up there doing something important they swoop down to help once in a while that's a theology of God of the box and Christians came to believe something completely different they came to believe that God doesn't live on the outer rim of reality swooping in to help us with our problems but in the Incarnation He actually comes to us there's no philosophy don't bother the gods there's a philosophy Jesus Comes to us to actually spend time with us. We've had a couple of occasions to talk about a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I just want to read you some of his words because he became very passionate about the incarnation. He became very passionate about refusing this idea of, of God out of the box. And he says this about Jesus He says, Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, meaning he's just super powerful, but rather by virtue of his weakness and suffering. This is the crucial distinction between Christianity and all religions. Human religiosity directs people in need to the power of God. So that's the God out of the box. You basically say, if you need help, you need religion, God's going to jump out of that box and help you. And Bonhoeffer says, that's not the Bible. He says, the Bible directs people towards the powerlessness and the suffering of God. And then he says, only the suffering God can help. There's something central to the humanness of Jesus that makes it possible for him to help us after all. Bonhoeffer goes on, this eliminates a false notion of God, frees us to see the God of the Bible who gains ground and power in the world by being powerless. That seems paradoxical, but I want to process what Bonhoeffer is saying with you to help emphasize why the doctrine of the Incarnation is so important to Christian faith. I'm going to give you five points, and I'll just reiterate them so that you know what we're talking about. The first one is, God wants to be with us. The doctrine of the Incarnation teaches us that God wants to be with us. The Gospel of John says, the Word of God was there from the beginning, it was God." created the world, but in Jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the language that John uses for dwelling literally means tabernacled or pitched a tent. And this is meant to evoke language from the Old Testament where Israel is wandering in the wilderness, they've struggled with obeying God, humanity as a whole has rebelled against God, and yet God wants to be with his people So he pitches a tent and wanders around with them. To think about why this happens, you have to understand that even though God is upset at the sin of his people, he really, really wants to be with them. That's a powerful notion for people, I guess, that sometimes wonder, does anybody care? Does anybody see the problems I'm having? Does anybody know me personally? And the God who tabernacles or tents with us tells us he wants to be near us. I think about when my kids were really, really small and they were in in cribs. Sometimes they'd cry and we were told don't take them out and put them in your bed and all that. So what would we do? We'd lay down on the ground next to the crib and put our hands through those very narrow railing, the bars, and we'd just be there with them. You might call that rough presence, right? I'm sleeping on the ground with my hand in a crib for hours every night, for possibly weeks or maybe months. And that's the idea of just being with them is so instrumental to their well-being, right? Being near them. And God, God does that with us. He creates rough presence, right? I'm put out when I sleep on the ground. And think how much more God's kind of put out in a way by having to go through the challenges, just like Supergirl. You've never heard of Supergirl illustration in the incarnation, I bet. But just like Supergirl has to go through the vulnerability and challenges of being human, so God does that to be near us. And so Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In the incarnation, God has made himself known, especially by coming to be with us. So first point, God wants to be with us. Second, God wants to redeem our humanity by transforming our broken image. I'll say that again. God wants to redeem our humanity by transforming our broken image. You may know that in the letters of Paul, he often refers to Christians as those who are in Christ. We're not exactly sure what Paul means when he says that, We're not literally physically in Christ, but some sort of metaphysical, spiritual way. We're in the orbit or realm of Christ, something like that. We're safe within him. We're located within his realm or kingdom or sphere. It's not quite clear what he means when he says that, but one of the ways that we can better understand what he means when he says in Christ is if we look at how he also says that humanity is in Adam, This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Paul says, In Adam all died, in Christ all made alive. Well, before we understand what it means to be in Christ, maybe we need to think about what it means to be in Adam. We're not physically in Adam, right? He's dead and gone. But what does it mean? It means maybe we have some sort of conformity to the pattern or blueprint that was created in Adam. And that created an image that has been distorted or marred. So Christ has to come along in order to reshape or refashion what it means to be human. Sometimes the Apostle Paul talks about the need to put to death or throw off what's sometimes translated as the old man or the old person, Romans six. 6. What does it mean if we have to put off the old person? Who's the old person in us? It probably refers to Adam. There's a way of being in the world that replicates the sinfulness of Adam and Eve, and Paul tells us to get rid of and throw off the old person and put on the new person. This is all really complicated theology, but if I had to sum it up, I'd say, we are doomed to repeat the sins of our progenitors our mothers and fathers and forefathers, until another model comes to shatter it. We're doomed to repeat the sins and mistakes of our progenitors until another model comes to shatter it. I think about a statement that has been with me for many years from a theologian from the early church named Irenaeus. He says, he became what we are, So that we might become what he is. God became what we are, human, so that we might become what he is. Now, we don't become divine, but if you've ever heard the language of being godly or Christ like, right, that's giving that sense of purifying or becoming what we were always meant to be as human. So the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. One of my favorite statements that gives that sense of what Irenaeus was saying is in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says, you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became Poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. I think what he's talking about there is transforming the humanity in us so that we become more and more like Jesus and restore the image of God. So just to summarize, God wants to be with us. The incarnation reminds us God is here. With us. He cares about what goes on in our world and in our daily lives. He wants to be with us. He's with us now through the Spirit. Secondly, God wants to redeem or transform our humanity by transforming our broken image. Third, God wants to know our human suffering. God wants to know our human suffering you read or are reading for this week from Hebrews, which talks about Jesus being a sympathetic high priest. Part of what Jesus does in the world is experience the challenges and difficulties of our humanity so that he can sympathize with us. About 10 years ago, a little bit less than 10 years ago, my family moved from Seattle, Washington, to Philadelphia, about 2,000 miles. We drove, and at that time, my youngest daughter was about one years old. Her name's Libby. And we had a wonderful trip. We went through Yellowstone, we went through the Black Hills, we saw Mount Rushmore and all of that. when we got to Philadelphia, within a couple of days, My youngest daughter, Libby, was diagnosed with cancer, leukemia, ALL. She's eight years old now. She's perfectly fine. Very happy ending to the story. But she, uh, I didn't even know at the time a baby could have cancer. But at one year old, she went into the hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, for the first month of cancer treatment, which is very aggressive treatment. It's called induction. Uh, She actually spent about three weeks in there. She couldn't leave the floor because she was immune-compromised. And you can only guess how devastating of a situation this is for our family, for me. Um, And many people came to visit us and to offer their help or care and concern. Uh, My my dad visited, my parents visited, my my wife's parents visited, my brother-in-law, some friends, the chaplain from the school I was going to teach at there in Philadelphia. But I was inconsolable. Uh, It was nice that people came, Uh, it was nice that people were helping out, but it never felt personally satisfying for me. Maybe you have some situation in your life where you can understand that. One person reached out to me that made an impact, his name's Mark Matthews. We were students together for our PhD program. We'd actually visited Mark and his family as we were traveling from Seattle to Philadelphia. Uh, He lives in Western PA, so we stopped at his house. This is before we knew that Libby had cancer. And as luck or fate would have it, at that time, his daughter had ended treatment for leukemia, his youngest daughter, Sarah. And we, you know, celebrated their recovery from cancer, and we uh, spent some time with their family, but we didn't, we didn't think anything of it. Mark drove a couple of hours to visit me in the hospital, to visit my family in the hospital, and as soon as he walked in the room, I lost it completely. I sobbed uncontrollably, possibly for hours, I don't remember, and he didn't have to say anything except He hugged me and he just kept repeating, I know. I know. I know. You can get all of the consoling words in the world, but it would never mean as much as Mark Matthews repeating to me over and over and over again, I know. I know. Because he did know. He'd been through the hell that I was experiencing in that moment. And i remember that it's been seven eight nine years and there's few people i think more of when i think of the incarnation than mark matthew spending maybe an hour or two with us but the fact that he could hold me and say i know made all the difference in my experience and to me that was one of the first things that came to mind when i think about the power of the incarnation Because it means Jesus Christ, God with us, can say to us, to anything you're going through, I know. It's not a platitude. It's not a sympathy card. It's real life and real human experience, which He experienced with us and for us. He chose it. So for Jesus to know us truly, He had to know our suffering and weakness. So, a reminder of that third point, God wants to know our human suffering. Not from afar, but actually with us as our sympathetic Savior. Number four, God wants to teach us incarnational ministry. God wants to teach us incarnational ministry. For God to come in the flesh, it was not just to save us. It was not just to rescue us, redeem us, even though those things are wonderful. It was also to teach us how to live in the world with each other. Now, we're already in the flesh. We can't become more in the flesh. But we can learn a certain pattern of going to the other, the needy other, and being with them and being like them and embodying or living within their challenges. I feel like a good example of this is when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. You may know this from the Gospel of John chapter 13. Normally, when you are walking around, you're getting your feet dirty because you're wearing sandals. You go into a house, and it's common to respect the house by washing your feet. In, in, a, in a nicer house, slaves would wash your feet. So Jesus actually humbles himself by taking the role of a servant or a slave and taking a towel and taking a basin of water and washing his disciples' feet. Now, this was a symbolic act. Peter, thinking probably too smartly, he says, no, 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 Jesus, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. This is a trick. I'm supposed to wash your feet. And what does Jesus say? He says, if you don't do this, you can have no part of my ministry. You can have no part of the future of Christianity. Why? Because he needed to learn the lesson of being as humble and gracious with others as Jesus was being with him. This is as close as we get to setting a pattern for incarnational ministry. Ministry just means love and service to others. Incarnational ministry means that when Jesus becomes human takes on our weakness and suffering, dies for us, rises again. Then he says, now you go and do likewise. We're not going to die for anyone's sins. But John tells us we can learn to lay down our life for each other. Right? So to be incarnational is to repeat. We call it non-identical repetition, meaning we're not Jesus. But we can aspire to be like Jesus by humbling ourselves, going towards the other in need, and embodying their world, and trying to understand it. It's like me laying on the ground next to a crib. I'm becoming like a baby, right? I'm becoming like them in order to serve them, and this is what Jesus teaches. The Apostle Paul gives us another example of this, I think, in 2 Corinthians. The Corinthian church was really into power and image, they wanted their leader like Paul to be strong, tall, good looking, powerful, kinda of like me. Right? Why are you laughing at that? They 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 want him to be this image of perfection and beauty and strength and wisdom. But in reality, we know that Paul did not always come across as these things. In fact, because of all the beatings and imprisonments and problems that he had, he had scars. Maybe he had a limp. He may have had bad eyesight, as, as some uh, theologians say. He did not come across as impressive. In fact, the Corinthian church kind of rebuked Paul and said, you kind of look like death walking. You kind of look like a, a walking dead person, like a zombie. And Paul doesn't back away from that. He says, if death is at work in us, meaning the apostles, that's because life is at work in you. Meaning, we've given and given and given of ourselves, in order to create or bring life to you. Whatever life you think you have, it was at our expense. This to me is another depiction of incarnational ministry because Jesus was going to and giving of himself and expending a lot of his life for the sake of bringing life to others. Now that doesn't mean he dreaded everything. He talks about, even in prison in Philippians, he talks about how joyful his life is. He talks about how much love is in his life. So it's not drudgery or misery, but it is sacrificial, and the incarnation is part of that. Number five, Jesus is our human advocate in heaven. It often shocks students when I tell them that the Bible communicates that Jesus is still human. It shocks students when I say that because they think, oh, when he rose from the dead, he became divine again. He never lost his divinity. What the early theologians agreed on is that Jesus is divine always eternally, but his becoming human became a new permanent part of that, and he remains human. Remember when he rose from the dead and Thomas doubted, and he said, Look at look at the holes. Right? Look at this, look at this hold my side. This was that way of testifying to the fact that Jesus continues to be human. Now, part of his job, you know, if we think about like, oh, when I pray, Jesus is there in the room with me. In a sense, he's with us because of the Spirit, but we also think that he's actually physically, you know, in the throne room at the right hand of God interceding for us. He actually tells his disciples that in the Gospel of John. He actually tells them I'm going to leave, and that sounds really bad, but it's actually good that I go. I'm going to send another advocate, which is the Spirit, and as for me, I'm going to be going preparing a place for you, and I'm going to be, you know, Paul explains, he's going to be interceding for us, which means he's going to be like someone that cares for our concerns and brings them to the Father. He has a divine role, obviously, but he has a kind of human role as well by being our advocate or our man. Some people say Jesus is our man in heaven. And I really really like that image. I think of the book of Esther, if you've read the book of Esther before. You have uh, Israel exiled under under Persian rule. And you have this unique situation where um, the Jews become uh, uh, unwelcome amongst the Persians and they're about to be wiped out And it just so happens that the king's favored wife, Esther, is Jewish. And the people of Israel actually rally behind her and say, you have this unique opportunity to advocate for us. You're one of us with availability in the household of the king. We need you to advocate for us. And I think about that with Jesus. He can advocate for us as God, son of God, but there's a unique, special, personal, embodied way that he can advocate for us as human son of God by the Father's side. The incarnation is all about having the ability to know God in a personal way. I want to finish by telling a story that I heard recently. Maybe you heard this story It's only partially relevant, but because it's kind of new, I thought it would be interesting to add. There's a woman named Chastity Patterson, age 23. This is a true story. She's been texting her dead father's phone for four years. She couldn't let go. She knew no one was on the other end, but she needed to have a way to talk to him. She would share with him her victories in life, her hopes and dreams. She would also share over text with her dead father, her sorrows, her depression, her sadness. To her surprise, four years later, which is just about a month ago, she got a text from that number. Not from her father, but from the man who had his number after him. And this man said he had received hundreds of texts from this girl over the years. This man had lost his own daughter in a car accident five years earlier, and he said to her that Chastity's texts were like messages from God, telling him it was going to be all right. I love this story because it has that kind of surprise to it but I think it's relevant to our understanding of God because sometimes we feel when we pray like we're sending texts into the atmosphere only to evaporate and be lost in the nothingness above us. But the doctrine of the incarnation tells us God is listening. He loves us and He wants to be near us and in His humanity He tells us I've heard you I've seen you. I'm proud of you. We're going into the Christmas season now. And as you all know, it is a celebration of the birth of Jesus. What I want to remind you here at the end of term, as we think about the doctrine of the Incarnation, is that Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. But I want you to be reminded it's a celebration of His humanity. And because it is a celebration of humanity, it is also a celebration of humanity. When we confess in the creed, born of the Virgin Mary, we're reminded that a major part of the gospel that we confess in the creed is a gospel of God who became human to be with us, and like us, and change us, and to know us personally. That's a powerful message and the greatest gift. Thank you.